the speaker said, who in here felt as they were growing up that they were the only person on the planet to ever feel this way? And every hand in the room shot up, oh, you know, wow. and that's like before yeah. like the internet, before Google, before social media, how isolating this must have yeah. felt. confident the podcast for introverts extroverts and everyone in between i'm your host chelsea heaney and my guest today is a plastic surgeon who specializes in gender affirmation surgery she has also gained a massive following on instagram and tiktok sharing educational posts about gender affirmation surgery please welcome to the show saif gallagher dr saif gallagher i should say (laughs) thank you for having me it's saturday i'm not doctor today so you get the weekends yeah yeah Yeah. Um, so have you always wanted to be a doctor was that the dream from the start yeah probably I mean growing up I I was a good child uh you know back home and I always wanted to do something that was useful and so I always perceived medicine as you know doctors are pretty useful you know so so that's probably you know what drew me into it but then I was very lucky that it was actually a great fit for me and you know medicine is such a diverse field like really there's almost something for everybody you know you never have to see it you can be a doctor and never see a patient if you want Um, but or or you can be incredibly creative which you know to me plastic surgery is kind of the most creative field so even though in school the things I thrived at um, were like visual arts and you know painting drawing all that sort of thing it actually turned out in a weird way that I was able to come back to that and you can apply all the same creativity you know and that's as surgeons we love being in the operating room because it's it feels like it's the same sort of flow state I used to remember like back in my teenage years where you know I just paint and draw for hours and forget to eat it was like one of the only things ever <laughs> I would do or you know be one of these people who forget to eat so um like definitely it, you know it's a really long path but I feel I've kind of come full circle back to it and it's been incredibly fulfilling and you know it wasn't intentional like I I didn't have a vision I would say you know like probably from like eight or nine I was talking about being a doctor but I had no idea that I was able to you know I would be able to come full circle and be a plastic surgeon and you know be able to tap into that creative side and get paid for it which is amazing yeah (laughs) that's such an interesting way you talk about like how plastic surgery is an art form I don't think I've ever heard people talk about that was that something you were hearing from other people or just something you sort of figured out yourself it was something I was watching, you know, because when you're in training for so long as a medical student, you're not doing, you're watching, you know, and you, you're mm. sort of hoping that's what it's going to feel like. And you don't <laughs> really know until you've invested a long time in it. But then, you know, especially in my field, and of course, even plastic surgery is such a diverse field, you know, plastic surgery you could be fixing, you know, broken hands, you know, one end of the spectrum. But in my field, and what I was really drawn to was, cosmetics and aesthetics um, and just making things look good because then 
I would say that artistic guy does come into play and maybe that's how you can technically excel a little bit better you know if you if you have a feel for that or you, you, just the interest you know just if you enjoy it you're going to do more of it and you're going to excel <laughs> so um I I would say and then for me it really came to you know because obviously I love cosmetic surgery I love aesthetics I love making things look good but then which was such a good fit for me was gender affirmation surgery because now the pressure is really on if somebody chooses to pass in the gender in which they identify you know the pressure is absolutely on me and it becomes a lot more meaningful to allow them to do so if they choose to do so so it's now you're taking something not that obviously I, I really enjoy doing cosmetic surgery and that's very fulfilling in and, of, in and of itself but I found really gender affirmation surgery to be the most meaningful and fulfilling from that point of view yeah uh, absolutely and I wanted to talk as well about the term gender affirmation surgery because I absolutely love that as a term because you know for years it's been called a sex change it was yeah. then called gender reassignment surgery but it's not it's it's affirmating the gender that this this person identifies as right right exactly and so you know I would say us as the medical profession we've been a, a little bit behind especially in the western world uh, on treating gender dysphoria and I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about the terms a, a little bit uh, in more detail but you know what doctors weren't getting like even 10 15 years ago here in the United States was you know we thought that just because you didn't identify with the gender you were assigned at birth meant there was something pathological there there was something mm. wrong with you you had gender identity disorder and now we understand that's not the case at all and actually gender identity disorder has been taken out of um the diagnostic manual and what we now understand is there's something there we can't quite qu quantify it we don't have a blood test for it we don't have an MRI but the most important thing if we care about the welfare of our patients is to respect this gender identity yeah so it doesn't matter what the biology says it doesn't matter the biological sex it doesn't really matter sexuality things like that is a whole separate thing but what we found was if we affirm that patient's gender identity well that will treat what is recognized as a serious medical condition which is gender dysphoria mm. so that gender dysphoria is that profound sadness and discomfort a patient will have from not identifying with um the gender they were assigned at birth. So we're kind of going from, there's this evolution in the medical community that really came about more so in the 60s where we now understood that you don't try to change what's in the patient's gender identity to fit their body. The much more effective treatment is to change the body to fit the patient's gender identity. And it's almost a little bit like the concept of, you know, back in the dark days when they were using conversion therapy um, to treat gay people. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we know that, I mean, simply from a practical, take the ethics out of it, just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. Know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I forget the question there. <laughs> <laughs> how, we, how we got down that path. Um, but oh that's right gender affirmation surgery so the concept really is and you know many of my patients will explain this they're saying I'm not changing genders it's not a sex change mm. since my earliest memories I identified as male or female or non-binary and we're simply affirming that we're yeah. simply making the change 
that would be affirming to that patient. And it's absolutely fascinating. And my patients have been my best teachers because as a surgeon, you know, I came from initially, I was a general surgeon. So, you know, if you have appendicitis, you need your appendix out and that's it, that we're done, you know. But now I take my cues very much so from my patients. So my patients will tell me, because of course, not every patient will want or need gender affirmation surgery, they'll not want or need the same procedure. And so it's a very nuanced, humans are very complex creatures in that it's not one size fits all. And really the best way to practice in this space is to listen to your patients. And these are very complex, well thought out um, decisions patients will make oftentimes um, with help from mental health professionals, uh, but patients tend to know what's best, best for them in this space. So so I take my lead, you know, within reason, obviously, uh, from the patient and and we go from there. Yeah, that's that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the best way to do that to be, you know, talking to the person actually getting the surgery and, and getting what they need, which is yeah. 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 Well, it's it's interesting. It's it's like an evolution we're seeing again in the medical profession. There was a time there was this more kind of um, patronizing approach where like mm. the doctor knows best. But, you know, time and time again, we're seeing it certainly in my practice, even in the evolution of my practice, you know, I, I'm just learning time. It's It's been reaffirmed to me constantly that, you know, if you really learn to listen to that patient and as a straight cisgender woman, that can be difficult for me to do, you know, because I really have to listen mm. <laughs> and make sure, you know, because oftentimes, you know, like I was raised with a binary idea of what it is to be a boy and what it is to be a girl. And, um, you know, as I keep saying, my patients have been my best teachers. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah that's really awesome. Um, I want to go back a little bit talking about sort of your, your journey as, as a doctor. People can probably hear that Irish accent that you've got. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned before you're in the U.S. So when when did you go from Ireland to the U.S.? Yeah, so um, I was very lucky. I was born and raised in Ireland, and we do have a great system over there where you can get educated, you can get third level education for free. So I was able to do medical school for free. I had no idea at the time that that was such a gift. You know, here in the United States, it's a very, mm -hmm. it's a very different story. So I did my medical education over there and um, graduated and got out into um, be becoming an intern. So I worked really hard. Um, in uh, the Matter Hospital in Dublin. It was a great year. It was very intensive, um, you know, a lot of what would be called scut work, which is just basically, you know, you're used as cheap labor, <laughs> you know, you're not really yeah. learning much, you know, you're just drawing labs all the time and, you know, it was physically exhausting about 100 hours a week. But what I realized at the time was that Ireland, and this was only about 16 years ago now, that, uh, I'm sorry, 15 years ago, that Ireland was still back then an old boys club. And I could see already the patterns forming that for somebody like me who wanted to do surgery, that, um, you know, my gender might interfere with that. Mm. And so I applied for a training scheme and I graduated in the top, I think, two or three percent of my class, but I didn't see that reflected in my, in my my choices <laughs> you know yeah. what what they were what they were willing where they were willing to send me so they're going to yeah. send me to rural ireland and uh. you know i wasn't sure if, if that was related to my gender or whatever but i could just see you know ireland is a small country at the time there were 19 plastic surgeons in the entire country you wow. know 4.5 million people you know so well it was less back then but just opportunities in Ireland were few and far between so for that reason that was the main reason I decided to to leave early 
so I did just one year training in Dublin and went to Philadelphia. And so um, I kind of had ideas in the back of my mind that I wanted to do plastics, you know, for the reasons we talked about earlier. But, uh, you know, it's it's I had to go a more circuitous route because plastic surgery is very competitive. So I was lucky enough to get into general surgery. Um in Philadelphia. So I did five years in Philadelphia and um, worked again extremely hard. It was like an 80 hour work week, but you know, fantastic, very privileged stuff, you know, because it's trauma surgery, it's it's life-saving surgery. You get you get to see all sorts of things as somebody, you know, in their early 20s, it's it's you know, it can be very profound. You get to, you know, to be quite blunt, watch a lot of people die, mm. you know. And so I always say I spent my twenties in in the hospital, but you know, I'm really grateful for a lot of those experiences. It's stuff that very few people get to witness, you know, some of it horrific, some of it heartwarming, you know. And so, you know, it, it definitely changes how you view life and death. Um, maybe maybe even gives you a more mature view, possibly to end the life stuff and decisions and all that sort of thing. So so I did that for five years, you know, um, parts of Philadelphia uh are very violent you know it's a, the knife and gun club we would talk about so you know mm. penetrating trauma is kind of the, one of the most exciting things a trauma surgeon can do you know when somebody comes in and they're literally dead their heart is stopped and you're, you're opening their chest in the emergency room to try and resuscitate them so it's really dramatic kind of sexy stuff you know <laughs> um, you see on tv you know so, so it, was, it was pretty awesome you know I did, I did that for five years um and then went on to do three years of plastic surgery training and I did that in Indiana. There's a fantastic program. There is a, you know, what we call a tertiary referral center. So it's a, like a, an academic institution that gets the catchment area of six million. So we get to see all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And, you know, the breadth of plastic surgery, plastic surgery, I remember my first night on call as a plastic surgery resident and you're clueless, like you're coming out, you think you're hot <laughs> stuff, you know, coming out of Philadelphia and bringing <laughs> people back to life. You think you know everything. And then it's like very humbling because you're thrown into this world of plastic surgery. And I remember that night doing everything from taking care of burn patients to, I remember getting a call from the, the neonatal, like the NICU where they keep the newborns. And they're, they're asking me to come and see a child that's born with webbed toes. And I'm like, is that plastic surgery? Everything from that to like a wrist fracture. So it's a really diverse field. And so in three years, you, you learn a lot of stuff. It's everything like plastic surgery is kind of everything on the fringes. So you, mm. you operate on all parts of the body, you operate in all age groups. Um, you know, it's just one small part of it is making things look good. But again, that's what I always gravitated back towards. So once I finished my three years of training in uh, Indiana, I had to come up with a plan not to get deported, <laughs> not to get sent <laughs> out of the country, because it's tough. It's, it's tough here in the United States, yeah. uh, even even tougher than Australia, I believe. You know, um, I have plenty of friends who immigrated there. So but uh, so that basically meant staying on um, as faculty at Indiana University. I was able to convince them to hire me there. So I stayed on there for five years and it was really there I was able to build this practice, which I didn't expect. I didn't see it coming. So basically what happened was at the end of my training in plastic surgery, a few things were going on in my personal life, like I broke up after an 11 year relationship and I kind of had this like wild phase but my version of a wild phase was going abroad and doing some training so so I ended up going to um, Serbia going to Belgium and picking up skills for gender affirmation surgery because at the time you couldn't get those um, in the United States so I had this fantastic summer um, 
suppose, an extended summer of traveling around, learning these skills. And then I went back to Indiana. And so Indiana is is the Midwest. It's quite conservative. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I was going to be able to build a gender affirmation surgery program there. But what I didn't understand was, of course, that um, being transgender and having gender dysphoria is a lot more common. We now understand it's extremely common <laughs> compared to what I was taught in medical school. And, you know, transgender, non-binary folks are everywhere. So it was a huge need in the Midwest. And we're able to gradually, as I build trust within the community, um, build a, a robust program there, which I ran for five years. And then I had a wild phase again, I rebelled again, and I, <laughs> there was no breakup this time, but I, um, I, well, that's, I always wanted to live here in Miami. I absolutely love Miami just because of the diversity and the sun and the ocean. It's a, an amazing city. It's so vibrant. Um, and a lot of good qualities that Indianapolis unfortunately doesn't have. Um, and so I started my own practice down here uh, in Miami and that was just we're going on seven months now so during the yeah. pandemic yeah 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 wow that was, that was, yeah that was a shocker you know and I'm really still shocked because even like as a doctor I, I didn't see that coming like none of my colleagues did like I mean you would think we should have had a better concept of like oh airborne virus that's coming mm. <laughs> no we're all blindsided you know and it's, it's like this amazing time you know for workaholic surgeons like myself in that we had to, we were forced to take two months off and none of us really had ever done that, you know, like really yeah, like going back. Like but, crazy hours. and Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're most comfortable doing. So it's so <laughs> interesting. Like, you know, a lot of my colleagues have had existential crises, you know, they brought on their midlife crisis a little early, you know, so, so it's been an interesting time. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of made the most of that time. It was one thing it was, it was great about it was I was able to write a book, um, which is for patients, uh, it's called affirmed. And basically, you know, one of the things I notice in this space is there's there's not, there's a lot of old wives tales and a lot of bad information out there, particularly on the internet. And in the United States, or I should say in the Western world, we, you know, um, this practice lived in the shadows for years, you know, so it hasn't, the best minds in medicine haven't been working on this stuff. And like I said, there's a lot of myth out there. So, one of my goals in life and, you know, brings us back to the social media aspect is to get good, high quality, understandable mm. information out there for patients. Because, again, how can the patient direct their care and tell you what they need if they don't understand the procedures? You know, so it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> so what I was able to do during that downtime with nine other providers who were sitting at home, as able to say, hey, can can you write something, you know, and contribute to this book, you know, which was amazing. So I was able to get, you know, some of the best and most experienced people to come together. But the deal was they had to read it so a 10 year old could understand it, you know, so lots of pictures, lots of diagrams. And um, so that was kind of my pandemic baby. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. And that was was one of my questions for you is, is what are some of those biggest misconceptions about gender affirmation surgery yeah yeah so first of all there's a lot of fear mongering out there there's yeah. a lot of you know it you know particularly the most common thing and I don't know where it comes from but one of the most common things I'll see is you know for trans masculine uh, patients or transgender men so that's a sign female at birth but transitioning mm -hmm. uh, to male they 
will obviously bind their chest to be more comfortable before surgery. And so one of the typical myths we're always kind of fighting is that just by binding your chest, you're going to somehow exclude yourself or disqualify yourself from getting surgery in the future so you know these poor kids lie awake at night thinking about this stuff you know and it's really that's not something you should be worried about so it's small things like that it's things like you know a lot of patients believe they'll lose their sexual function you know if we do genital uh, gender affirmation surgery you know they think all sensation is going to go um, and just other small things, you know, even sometimes the fertility aspect is, of things, you know, going the other way, you know, even some patients will believe that after the genital surgeries that they, they will be able to, you know, for example, if, if a male transitions uh, to a transgender woman, that she'll be able to give birth, you know, to, in the traditional way, you know, so just kind of trying to help um with those myths is huge and just also another thing that i find is so important is this concept of humans are so complex and not one size fits all so the classic concept of binary for example you know you would think well if you're going to have if you're going to transition to being a transgender woman you're going to want all the parts right so but i have many patients probably 20 25 percent of patients who want me to feminize everything on the outside but they're never going to want or need a vaginal canal right so why would they put themselves through all of that just to get you know something they don't need so we call that a zero depth procedure so you know we'll feminize everything on the outside and not necessarily make the canal you know, yeah. um, so or, you know, a lot of patients will choose to, for example, have mastectomies, but the aesthetic of having a nipple is not right for them. And so, you know, it's interesting to me and I've taken off a number of nipples put back on by other surgeons who were, the, the nipples weren't wanted. <laughs> yeah. Like, why, why would you do that? So, again, it comes back to this concept of, uh, you know, listening to the patient and and educating the patients that, you know, here there's a menu of options and you just try and find the one that's going to be the most affirming for you. For, for you. And the patients know, you know, they, they'll guide you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you were talking before about, you know, sort of being guided by your patients. What What is the, the lead up? to a gender affirmation surgery. Um, yeah, yeah. What's all the stuff that so, has to be done before the actual surgery can take place? Right, well, so so I think there's another myth out there that, you know, somebody takes a, on a whim, you know, decides, oh, I'm a man today, or whatever <laughs> it may be, and heads on into their sex change, as it was called, uh, clinic, and, you know, emerges a man. So that is not the narrative. I don't think I've ever seen any, you know, that situation. So, um, but it's, on the other hand, it's not one story fits all. Absolutely, you know, the stories are very personalized. Again, humans are diverse creatures. But typically what will happen is most of my patients will tell the story of, um, you know, the, the, from very early childhood, they had these feelings. Many patients very understandably will have suppressed these for years. So a lot of my patients um, will choose to transition a lot later in life. And for example, I did a bottom surgery in a 73 year old, so male to female patient. Oh. Uh, we did a vaginoplasty and she sailed through it. She did awesome. But it's this concept of, you know, this was something she suppressed her entire life. And then um, I think in her case, it was, it was maybe it was the death of a parent. But, you know, there's a lot of things that it can sort of trigger a patient to transition later in life, a divorce, a death of a parent, a health scare or something like that. Actually, for her, yeah, I remember it was a health scare. And in her case, she said, well, I cannot die as a man. 
I'm a woman. I've suppressed this for so long, but I just cannot die as a man. And so that mm. was her impetus to go ahead and transition. So what um, typically what the story will be is by the time a patient reaches me, they're usually quite well into their transition and oftentimes can be many, many years on hormones. The strict requisites are um, put together by a professional body called uh, WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And so what they do is they put together standards of care which guide us in when when it's right to do surgery because obviously you don't want to first do no harm obviously and many of these surgeries are irreversible there's very few things we talk about you know when you're making a diagnosis what's the differential what else could it be and there's not many things that can be confused uh, by this but nonetheless for most of the irreversible surgeries patients um, do have to see a mental health professional and, and be evaluated and for the bigger surgeries, uh, like the genital surgeries, it's usually an MD or a PhD level. So typically we'll talk about the most complex one, um, you know, patient that I see, for example, if she wants to have a vaginoplasty, so transitioning from male to female, she's going to have one letter from uh, a mental health professional, one letter from a psychiatrist, one letter from an endocrinologist, and at least one year of living full time in her gender identity and one year of continuous hormones. So those right now are kind of the standards and um, they're, they're kind of the minimum patients have to meet but these treatments are oftentimes not very accessible for social and financial reasons Mm. so therefore you know there's a ton of barriers um, for patients but like I said by the time that I meet the patient they're oftentimes well into their transition you know and they've been through that evolution of realizing what's going on themselves coming out to their family their community doing counseling whatever it is so um, but I would say this concept as well, this other concept that, you know, regret is common and patients flip flop and it's extremely rare. I mean, I think I've treated over a thousand patients at this point and regrets are extremely rare. And this is borne out in the literature as well. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you were talking earlier about sort of the artwork of things and, you know, we're talking about the, the conversations with the patients, you know, all all vulvas all penises they're all different on every person right. so is that a conversation yeah. that you have with with your patient if you're doing a, a genital surgery yeah yeah absolutely and so you know with with some things in plastic surgery the patient can has great control you know one of the one of those examples would be what size you want me to make your nipples or <laughs> do we want nipples <laughs> do we not want nipples other things are a little bit more difficult to control like where I place your incisions because obviously if I'm taking something off here I can't put the incision over there <laughs> so you know we have this conversation you know to try if at all possible, to, to get a good concept of uh, what what their before and after is going to look like. And um, with regards to the genital surgeries in particular, that can be a little bit more difficult uh, to control the outcome. And it really sort of depends on the patient's anatomy to begin with. It heavily depends because, and particularly, the, the more you, used to, you get used to looking at genitalia, the more you see the massive variation, <laughs> you know, and, and all, all, all the nuances. And so, therefore, the, the post-operative result will be obviously heavily based. There's some things we can influence. And we always, you know, unless the patient tells me otherwise, go for the most natural look possible. But um, it oftentimes, especially from a gentle point of view in in 
depends on the pre-op anatomy. The other thing that's notorious about genital surgeries is because we sit on it all day, it swells for a long time. <laughs> so it can almost mm. look, you know, depend on the surgery, like kind of cartoonish for the first few months. So there's really a lot of counseling and, um, you know, setting the patient's expectations uh, for yeah. the first few months after surgery, just because it takes a frustratingly long time to look, um, you know, to get the final result. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's so many different surgeries that, that come under the, the umbrella of gender affirmation surgery. Yeah. You know, I, I would assume that the, the genital surgeries are probably the hardest of those ones, but um, are there, there ones that are more common? Do, like how long do the surgeries normally take? What, sort yeah. of those different types of surgeries that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there's um, probably the most common gender affirmation surgery that's performed around the world is bilateral mastectomies for female to male patients. I would say those are the most common. And the reason that is, is it's a straightforward surgery. Um, it's obviously nuanced, you know, because it's not just mastectomies, you're masculinizing the chest, uh, but there's a lot of surgeons who can do it. So access to that surgery um, is, is common. And that's probably number one. Uh, number two in my practice would be the uh, male to female genital surgeries. Um, probably the reason that's a more common one is it's a complex surgery, it's a long recovery, but it works. It works well. You know, you can create very natural looking genitalia, functional genitalia with uh, a vagina that, that can be used. Um, facial surgeries, they work fantastically. Usually in this uh, country, they're not covered by insurance. So, you know, they can be difficult to access. And oftentimes if we're talking about a male to female patient, which is the typical, it's called facial feminization, those surgeries can take, you know, 12 hours because you're recontouring, you're, you're doing bone work, you're taking down mm. the brow bone, you're taking down the jaw bone. Uh, so th those can be long, complex surgeries. Again, access is a problem uh, to those surgeries because insurance won't cover. Um, and then when probably the most complex, I would say, surgeries, um, the, you know, the medical profession really needs to do better. We need to come up with something. We need to innovate. And I'm always talking to the, you know, the smartest doctors I know. I'm like, can't you think of something, you know, but, <laughs> you know, you come up with it. Um, but is, is, of course, uh, you know, creating a penis. So there's an old yeah. saying in urology, it's easier to dig a hole than <laughs> and it's 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 unfortunately true and you know there's, there's no good answer and when you see one of my mentors used to say when you see in surgery many different options it tells you that there's no one good way you know if you need mm. your gallbladder out it's you're going to get a lapros uh, laparoscopic cystectomy you know it's simple because it works and it's the best mm. but when you're creating a penis there's many many different ways of doing and sort of the two categories to know it is well are we going to create a penis from the growth we've had below because of course when exposed to testosterone the clitoris will grow and, and grow quite a bit in some patients or are we going to try and bring in tissue elsewhere and completely create a new penis and so the reasons it's so complex is it's difficult to create uh, a life like like a, a, a natural appearing penis mm. it's difficult to create something that can get an erection and you actually yeah. have to put in a device well we don't have many devices available except for those that are used for for, um, cisgender men or cisgender yeah. is a term for non-transgender so we only have those who devices for um, men who have erectile dysfunction so we're trying to adapt those for mm -hmm. the transgender community and honestly they don't work great a lot of the time um, 
And then probably one of the most difficult things is lengthening the urethra. So that's, uh, you know, being able to stand to pee, yeah. which is a goal for, you know, many transgender men. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's a difficult thing to achieve. And so that's probably the most complex uh, surgeries and none of them are, are great. You know, it's and, and they tend to take multiple steps and get extremely expensive. So, you know, your insurance has to cover them and they're very specialized as well. So, yeah, absolutely. yeah. yeah. And you mentioned earlier you you have your own clinic, which you run with your sister, started Mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Yeah. How do you, um, you know, do you you get referrals? Is it sort of through your social media? How do you you get patients that find you? Yeah, yeah. So probably the game changer for us. I mean, I've been on Instagram for years. Uh, and then I was moving down to to this area. I'm not obviously not known and brand new. I was known in the Midwest. I'm not known here in South Florida yet. But um, probably, you know, while we were doing nothing during the pandemic, and I always had a good flow of uh, referrals through word of mouth and um, Instagram in the Midwest. So, you know, I always had uh, more patients than, than we could handle. But it was funny. My sister is seven years younger than me and is a lot cooler than me. Um, told me I had to get a TikTok account. And I said, absolutely no way. I'm not, not doing TikTok. I'm not dancing. I'm not going to do that. And then fast forward a few months later, we've, I think, 145,000 followers, you know. So, wow. so a lot of my patients actually find me through TikTok. Mm. But what I like about TikTok, I don't dance on it usually. <laughs> Um, but, but what I do is, I mean, it, it, like, you know, again, if I was more self-conscious, I'd, I'd worry about it. But basically what I do is 15 second videos. But what I use them for is it's just usually me standing and smiling and some music in the background. And but it just snippets of information, you know. So, again, it lines yeah. very nicely with, with that mission I had to try and deliver information. And so it's kind of funny because the first half of my career, I feel like I was making information as complex as possible, putting it in peer reviewed journals, putting statistics on it logistic regression anything you know to try and make it um, as complex as possible but again that's not accessible so who cares at the end of the day that article sits and you know gathers dust on a shelf to now I'm doing 15 second videos it has to be understandable by a 10 year old it has to you know because obviously these are complex concepts so they have to be as accessible as possible but at the end of the day, they get watched by, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, you know, so yeah. so that's my job. <laughs> my job is done. So it's kind of through that education approach. Um, that's usually how, how we get our referrals. And so my sister is, um, she's a school teacher who worked in Dubai for many years. And she's, she's the youngest in the family, you know, and she's kind of that that smart ass sibling you know the one who knows everything and she does <laughs> she's the smartest you know for sure so but it's fantastic now because we can leverage that smart ass <laughs> ability you know to, to actually help patients and she's fantastic she's a, like she actually actually before I ever was she was such a strong ad- advocate um so you know she just that she uses that to fuel the fire and harasses insurance companies and and actually is you know is a fantastic uh manager so it actually works very well. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, talking about your Instagram and, and TikTok, it's not something that, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of doctors that do it, but most doctors don't have that sort of big social media presence. You said you've had Instagram for a while. What made yeah. you decide to to have that presence and, and go down that route? 
Yeah. Well, so initially it, w- it was probably quite selfish, you know, because I love doing these surgeries and I want to do more of them. And obviously, you know, she <laughs> who, who markets herself gets the patients, you know. So initially it, w- it was really a, a marketing platform and to be able to put my before and after pictures up there and try to, you know, win the trust of the community. Uh, so more folks would let me operate on them. Uh, so that, that was that was initially the goal. And then I could marry in this secondary goal of uh, education and then just from a practical point of view it's it's fantastic you know because the only bad part of my job or kind of boring part of my job before would be repeating the same things over and over again you know so if you see you know 15 new patients in a day it can be kind of exhausting at the end of the day because you'd much rather have be having an authentic conversation with your your patient rather than just saying well this is going to happen this is going to happen you know over and over again which is a big part of a doctor's job so what i find was and particularly a lot of my patients are millennials and even gen z now that they best uh consume the information from their screen you know, and even yeah. if you're parroting the same thing, they're not listening. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's difficult. And, and I even find that when I see my doctor, I'd much rather get something I can go read in my own time and, and take in the information that way. So um, I find it's extremely powerful that the patients come in already very well versed, and very educated. And there's all sorts of secondary benefits to that in that, you know, their family members are educated and well versed, and it really mm. helps ease anxiety as well. Yeah. You know, so, so that's, that's, a huge benefit just selfishly like in in my practice it works really well and then probably another benefit I could have never foreseen which actually kind of you know it gives me goosebumps when I think about this is so many kids will message me and tell me about situations that they were in for example they found themselves um, with gender dysphoria or not identifying with the gender they were assigned at birth and then transphobic parents or just yeah. they're not transphobic parents but the parents just couldn't understand and yeah. you know it was creating so much conflict and I mean my heart goes out to these kids because I can only imagine what that's like the puberty is tough enough okay? yeah <laughs> like we're going through puberty you know it's, it's something you don't identify with it's like horrific really so you know these kids would tell me stories about how you know they were able to show their mom or whatever my videos and now it's sort of you know a lot of people still respect the medical profession and when you have somebody in a white coat who is affirming transgender identities it's hugely powerful and so it kind of gives me the chills that you know in that very profound way um you know these silly 15 second tiktoks could be making such a difference to that kid's life you know, yeah. and really helping that relationship in that family, you know. So, I mean, social media, it's, it's uh, I mean, the usual narrative is it's so harmful or whatever. But, I mean, there's a lot of amazing benefits because Absolutely. that same kid, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll like, very quick stories. Like, um, I, I was in one of these very privileged situations one time. I was talking at a conference in uh, Pennsylvania. And I found myself, I was the only cisgender woman in the room uh, of entirely transgender women, um, a lot of them very successful, like kind of between the ages of uh, 40 to 70. And so it was very interesting. The speaker said, who in here felt as they were growing up that they were the only person on the planet to ever feel this way? And every hand in the room shot up. You know, and that's like before the internet, before Google, before social media, how isolating this must have have felt, you know, so there are a lot of benefits. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And are you still in contact with with some of your patients? Yeah, because obviously you're a big part of your life. Yeah, yeah. 
And so, yeah, that's a, that's another thing. It's it's like my patients, like that I operated on five, six years ago, will still send me pictures, and you know they'll still be chatting in the DMs, and they're so sweet. I mean, I, I had one guy yesterday I posted his picture on Instagram yesterday but he like checks in on me <laughs> he's like such an evolved individual you know the check in he'd be like oh how are you though you know <laughs> like, so it's like an amazing thing you know like we, we all have you know days where you're like what am I doing with my life or whatever you know so you're doubting yourself and then you know there's there's like this presence of these fantastic folks who will will thank me and it's almost embarrassing the gratitude is almost embarrassing like the many will thank me every year on the anniversary of their surgery you know so it's like amazing to see that and like I love watching them you know and how they're you know progressing and yeah. their transition in their lives you know it's so lovely to see so yeah the, yeah the community element of it as well is fabulous yeah really and as you know the the, the person who makes this huge change for so many people do you feel sort of a lot of responsibility around that as well as you know the privilege of it yeah I mean I do but it's um I would say overall it's very it's in a positive way you know you know if if you're dragging you're like "Mm, Monday morning you're like no wait a minute this is some person not some person eight people some well I don't do eight surgeries in a day but five people <laughs> today we this they're gonna remember this forever you know and it's like you know you you take your coffee and I, it was it was awesome actually before Christmas I think my sister takes it very seriously you know that responsibility and so before Christmas we we just you always have a rush at the end of the year and it was awesome because we were living together at the time and she was kind of treating me I felt like I was like an athlete like nine o'clock would come she'd be like bed <laughs> I was like okay okay <laughs> so yeah but but it's yeah I mean I I have to say I, I enjoy the responsibility you know for sure yeah awesome um now we're getting close to the end here um but I was I was watching um some of your YouTube videos because you also do some YouTube videos for education um and you mentioned on there that you're also a pilot yeah, I'm and not I a very good like one. And I felt like you had to bring this up. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, so I was very lucky. Like, I was raised in a family of four kids, but my mom, the only person who made any money in our house was my mom, who was a school teacher. She was the breadwinner, and she, I don't know, somehow was like a magician. Well, whatever money she had, she made it go so far. So I was extremely lucky. When I was a teenager, I, I got to do flying lessons and, and subsequently got licensed. So back then, I was kind of like a decent pilot. Uh, but, you know, flying a plane is extremely expensive, you know. So then, you know, the student years and all that, I, I, I obviously didn't do it. But now, um, and particularly now that I've moved down to Miami because it's such beautiful surroundings, um, I've gotten back into it again. So I'm very dangerous um, <laughs> as a pilot. <laughs> At least I have the insight that I'm dangerous. And, um, you know, but like I, I go up right now, I, I find a fantastic instructor here and I'm kind of I'm kind of lazy. I know she's going to want to push me to go solo again, but I just kind of go up with her and, you know, she's um very brave <laughs> I was, was going to use another term but she's very brave and she, she lets me you know it's kind of like the most amazing roller coaster you could ever be in and she you know she knows she can correct she can get me out of whatever you know whatever harm we put ourselves in but yeah that's that's one of my hobbies and I absolutely love doing it and you know but it's just for fun you know these days I I, I know I'm dangerous so <laughs> I just love yeah. that though oh I'm a plastic surgeon and my hobby is flying planes um <laughs> yeah badly <laughs> better surgeon than pilot that's good yeah um 
Uh, like I said, we are getting close to the end here, but I always like to ask a random question of each of yeah. my guests before we finish up. Um, and so my question for you is, what is the weirdest thing that you do when you're totally alone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, let me think. Um, well, I'm totally alone. So probably, okay, this, this isn't very exciting, but probably, and because I've done it all day today, and my mom will be totally shocked by this, but when I'm totally alone, I love cleaning. It's like my new thing. And I, one of my friends, you know, who like, she's like, you got to get a cleaner. And I'm like, I, I actually don't want it. Like, I kind of I love it. And it's just like, I listen to audio books and it's, it's just kind of therapeutic to me. So anybody who knows me or knows me growing up, it's, that's pretty weird. That's pretty out of character. And I don't know why, just since I moved down here and I have a beautiful apartment or whatever, and I'm not the cleanest person by nature, but that's that's probably when I'm totally alone, what I, what I like to do. There you go. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. I was trying to think of what what mine would be, and what like, would it be? I, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I've been trying to think. Of, and this is something that I've only done recently. I adopted a cat back in October, um, and his uh-huh. name is Theodore. And um, people who listen to the show will know that I do a lot of musical theatre. And I've just like when I'm alone, I just sort of adapt musical theater songs to include the song Theodore and just like sing them to him nice um like there's I don't know how much (laughs) into musical theater you are but there's um a song in Hamilton called Dear Theodosia um which is now Dear Theodore um there's Good Morning Baltimore from Hairspray is Good Morning Theodore um So it's a lot more interest than mine. <laughs> but I'm just, I, I think it. it's saying a lot about my mental space. I think it's just slowly um, turning into a crazy cat lady just singing well, Broadway songs to my cat. Nothing, I, I'm, I'm, I'm adopting a cat as well next month. So there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> I'm so happy that I have him. He's an absolutely gorgeous boy. Um, and my final question for you is the question I ask everyone who comes on the show. Uh, the show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident because that's how I want to describe my self do you consider yourself a confident person it depends on the on the on the context so I would describe myself as an ambivert I'm like truly more introverted really I recharge you know alone cleaning my apartment but I would say there's been a huge evolution I was an awkward shy socially awkward teenager and so there's been a huge evolution. Well, I should say, I started out as a very confident performing kid who turned into a shy teenager and that kind of, the hangover effect of that, like all through my 20s. But I think I can see I'm becoming, how I describe more and more extra, the older I get. Yeah. And I don't know when it's going to stop. <laughs> it's like kind of the, the bar, you know, it's sliding away the, the other way. So yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm definitely confident in, you know, from a professional point of view, but um yeah, probably getting more so as I get older, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. That's how we should all be. We want it to go on an yeah. upward slope rather than down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been an absolute blast yeah. listening to you and, and getting to learn. Yeah, I could chat with you all day. You're, you're such a good interview. You just put people at ease. I mean, I've, oh, I've been telling you. you 
confessions if we kept going. Thank you, um, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review, share it. All of those things help this get seen by more people. You can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J Heaney or the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Sive, where can people find more about you? Um, so Instagram is um, at Dr. Sive, so it's D-R-S-I-D. I probably shouldn't have used that handle, but that's my Instagram. <laughs> uh, I'm on Facebook, same name, YouTube, same name, and then at the gender surgeon on TikTok. Beautiful. And I wanted to ask as well, do you have any um, good resources that people can go to if they're um, curious to learn more about gender affirmation surgery? Yeah, absolutely. So probably one of the best international resources is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And they create a there's a PDF. It's there in version seven right now. And it's easy to read. There's no jargon. It's all evidence based. You can download the PDF and uh, you'll instantly make yourself able from zero to 100 to be an expert. Beautiful. All right. Thank you again so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me.